Well, we are, in fact, extremely fortunate today to have Mike Miller here to teach us, and Mike will be teaching us for the next three weeks. And we have handouts here. Now, Paul asked me to introduce Mike. Well, Mike is a former minister here. How many of you are fully aware of who Mike Miller is? So, Mike, I have a bunch of handouts here that I'm going to hand out while you're cleaning things up here. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. One minute. We'll do this later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, love her. I love the intensive preparation. Was that the starting gun I heard go off? <laughs> well, it's really good to be here, and I appreciate the fact that most of you think you know exactly who I am. <laughs> <laughs>
We have been through a 30-year period of rethinking the reality of gender and sexual orientation, and we're still in the process. So I commend Tom and the church for uh, having an occasion to think about what it means to be men what it means to be women too, but what it means to be men in this age in which we live. It's a different age. And I'm not going to say anything more about that. I just wanted, just wanted you to know. I also noted that uh, that I, we usually appear over here about the time of the garage sale. <laughs> and some, some of you remember how much I appreciated the garage sales. I'm, I'm looking directly at, at Gail and Diana back there who suffered with me through a number of garage sales, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, as a matter of fact, during the time that I was dealing with garage sales at Roswell United Methodist Church, they wrote the book on the on the garage sale. It was a definitive success, at least in a small area. <laughs> I don't know that it ever sold very many copies, but it, it, was, it was a great, I appreciated it greatly. I really did. But Paul signed me up to do today was to talk about uh, a way we can understand the Bible. And I want to do that, and you've got the hand out there, and I have a, and the copy of it in front of me so that I know what I'm doing up here. But uh, before I get to that handout, I want to do something of an introduction about thinking about God and some of the preconceptions that we have or some of the understandings that we have about God and this world. And I guess uh, what I am talking about is the fact that God exists in a separate realm, and I don't even know how to define that except to say that God exists apart from us. Now, when I say that, I'm, I'm much aware of the fact that that word exist is, uh, says something to the effect that when you say something exists, what you mean literally is that you stand apart. X is from an essay from which is is taken is the Latin for to be or to be reality. So to exist is to stand apart. God stands apart from the universe in whose creation he was involved. All right? He exists, meaning that he is real. And right there is another idea that I've been struggling with recently. Real as different from ideal. You go back to the, uh, again, you go back to the Greek, and you talk about to be real as, or the Latin really, race is thingness. Thingness. So that what is real is something you can get your hands on. It, it is real. It exists. And you can see it and you can and you know that it exists. It stands apart. <laughs> Ideal is something else. It is that which comes from the id. That's where we get the word. Ideal or ideal. The id. The imagination. And these are represented by two philosophic philosophers of ancient Greece. One was Plato, who was an idealist. 
He thought that behind every real thing, every tangible thing, there was an idea first, and that the most important thing was the ideal. And then along came Aristotle, and several hundred years after Plato, and said, no, that's wrong. Where we need to begin is with the real, what we can sense with our five senses. And then we can talk about the ideal, because until we grapple with what is real, it is impossible to think about what is beyond reality. Now, so when I say that God is real, well, I am saying that there truly is a being called God, and that he exists in a realm apart from us, a realm which we cannot ultimately imagine unless, unless God chooses to communicate with us. And this idea came to me in some of the recent reading I've been doing. Uh, I've been reading Abraham Joshua Heschel's uh, God in Search of Man. I've read about this book uh, a number, for a number of years and finally decided that my admiration for Heschel should be read the book. So I got the book and read it. I didn't know what it was. It's, uh, it's a tome. It's about 400 pages. It's called The Philosophy of Judaism. And it has three parts. The first part of it is about God. The second part of it is about revelation. And the third part of it is response. And that, my dear friends, is an understanding of our Judeo-Christian tradition. We believe in a God who is real, who exists in a realm of parts, which I refer to as the supernatural, meaning it is distinct from the natural world, and then, uh, and that this God has chosen to communicate with us. And he's chosen to communicate with us in a particular way. And this, this is part of, my, part of my faith that I'm talking about. It's a deep part of my faith for that reality. This idea came to me um, originally on something that is sort of a prologue to that uh, outline that you have a number of years ago. It's been my privilege uh, in my adult life in studying the Bible and the Old Testament to rub elbows on occasion with some really distinguished scholars of the Old Testament. And one, one of those occasions happened in Tulsa in um, 1984, when I was uh, part of the uh, faculty of the Oral Roberts University School of Theology, teaching Old Testament to uh, budding uh, theologians and uh, pastors. At any rate, uh, I made a friendship with my colleague at the other university in Tulsa, Tulsa University, fine Presbyterian school, John Gammy. John Gammy was a professor of religion at Tulsa University. They didn't have a very large department there. But he was the professor of religion, but his area of expertise was the Old Testament, particularly the wisdom literature. And in his graduate studies, he had gone to Oxford and studied under a man by the name of James Barr, uh, who was a Regis professor of Old Testament at Oxford University. Now, as far as I'm concerned, you don't get much higher than Oxford University, and being a Regis professor of Old Testament at Oxford University uh, is really something else again. Well, John knew that uh, Professor Byer was traveling in the United States, and he invited him 
because they had become friends while he studied with them, to come and speak at uh, Tulsa University. And uh, John invited us to come over to his home one night for a kind of uh, discussion with Professor Barr uh, with some of the other Old Testament uh, teachers around the area uh, from Stillwater and Oklahoma City and Norman. Uh, teachers, and he included me in it because I knew him there in Tulsa. And I expected something very, very difficult to comprehend from Professor Barr. Uh, but I uh, discovered that night that the ability to put things simply is part of genius. Because I was sitting in the presence of genius that night, and I want to put the outline that uh, Professor Barr gave us up on the board. I was going to do this before class to save time, but I got interrupted, unfortunately. So I'm going to do it now, and I'm going to try to speak loud enough so that you can, this thing can hear me, and you can hear me too while I do this. This is what Professor Barr did for us. He started, at, he said, in the first place, you have to start with God. That's where you begin. You don't begin with human beings and imagine back up to God. The idea of God, that's not it. You start with God who you believe exists in some realm apart from ours. And then what you believe, and I'm talking now about the Judeo-Christian tradition in particular, what you believe is that God calls a community into being. All right? God calls the community into being, and that community lives together with some sense of the presence of God among them, or, among them, or God guiding them. And that community, in their experience of relationship with God, develops a tradition. Tradition. You've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof of New York? Tradition! There it is. There you go. We've got a tradition, and we have to stand by our tradition. And we really do have to stand by our tradition. All right? All right. And then the next step, which is a big step, a great big step, is that from that tradition, you take a slice, never the whole of tradition. You don't ever grasp the whole tradition, you take a slice and it becomes scripture. Meaning it becomes an authoritative slice of the tradition which by which you will be guided, which you give to which you give a special name, and that name is the name in English is canon. One end, not a gun to fire. This is an authoritative, authoritative writing, and it is agreed upon by human beings. Understand? So far, you're with me. Now that that word canon also comes from the Greek, uh, K-A-N-O-N, which is the Greek word for reed or uh, a measuring instrument, basically. But it goes back to the word for read. 
And I like to il illustrate it by saying this. Somewhere in this world, and it's in whatever passes for the Bureau of Standards in uh, France, there is a platinum rod, which is a meter long. And if you want to know how long a meter is, the ultimate authority for that is that platinum rod in this Bureau of Standards in France, which is kept under, uh, you know, climatically controlled conditions. And if anybody questions what the length of a meter is, you go in and you check that rod. That is the standard that everybody has agreed upon, is the length of a meter. Scripture is something like that. It is the standard by which the community life continues to develop. Now, what happens when you decide on Scripture and you decide to make something canonical is that the life of the community changes. And I want to point this out very clearly. When you decide that you're going to make something Scripture, the danger is that the Scripture itself will go back this way, and that it will define how God acts. That's dangerous. Scripture really goes back this way, and the life of the community is shaped from the point that you decide what is scripture, the life of the community is shaped into the future. But I believe that God is still sovereign over the scripture. Why am I saying this? Well, it's because in my adult lifetime I've encountered a lot of people who somehow believe that God is bound by the scripture. <laughs> the Bible is perfect. And that if you find a verse and you understand that verse and it says you what you want, then God is bound to what you want. And no, that isn't the way it is. It, it is not that way. This God is real. At least in my understanding. It is not a figment of my imagination. If I understand God at all, it is at least through the understanding of Scripture. But I realize that there are also two books of the theologian. One is the Bible and the other is nature. One of my favorite authors said during the time of his writing that the book of nature is becoming even more complicated than the Bible in many ways to understand uh, in understanding God. Difficulty? We have a difficulty reading God in nature. Now, all right, what is this scripture that I'm talking about? Well, basically, uh, to say it one way, it is the Protestant Bible. You understand that? And uh, the decision about what is in our Protestant Bible is a relatively late thing, and I think probably many of you realize that. Um, uh, of course, when I was, when I was reading Heschel, uh, what he was saying, what he was talking about in Scripture was what we consider the Old Testament, we Protestants. Uh, you do, uh, maybe, well, maybe I'd better say this so you, you know what Bible I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, the 66 books in our Bible, 39 in the Old and 27 in the New. Uh, the Hebrews saw it as Torah, 
Torah was scripture within scripture. It was the authoritative writing even before the uh, Jews, the people of Judaism, decided that the prophets were going to be part of their sacred writings. Then there, there's Torah, the first five books of the uh, what we call the Old Testament. There are the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, four books in the Hebrew Scripture. There are the latter prophets, uh, that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the Twelve. And that's what we call minor prophets. And then there are a collection of things, all the rest of it, that is called writings in the, uh, in, by the Hebrews. Uh, we tend to neglect the, the distinction there. But just for example, the book of Daniel, which most uh, people in Christianity think of as a prophet, is part of the writings as far as Judaism is concerned. It is not considered a prophetic book. Uh, I say all of that simply to say that that's the book that the Jews decided upon, and they didn't decide upon that book until 90 A.D. And I say that deliberately, just so you'll know, that after the destruction of Jerusalem, and after the dispersal of the, the Hebrew community from Jerusalem and ultimately from Palestine, the, the rabbis met in a little coastal town called Yamia, around 90 AD, and I, they, they sometimes call it the Council at Yamnia, but I don't think it was that formal. But at any rate, they decided what was going to be in the canon. Why did they decide that they needed to decide what was going to be in the canon? Because of the rising Christian church, and because of the separation between the synagogue and the church. Now, it's a little more complicated than I have described to you to this point, but that's that was the basic part of it, and the, the Jews went along, and they still, if you get a, a Jewish Old Testament, a Jewish Bible, it still has just exactly what I described as the contents of the Bible, of their Bible. Now, uh, we added the New Testament, and uh, ultimately, we came on down, but the Christian church, the Christian church, mostly Roman Catholicism for the first 1,500 uh, years, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church never made a decision about canon until the Reformation. Tom, you had a question. Yeah. Uh, the, the 90 AD thing, did that apply to the entire Old Testament? Like, or were you referring just to Daniel? No, 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 no. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it, re it refers to the entire Old Testament. Oh, okay. Some of them, some of them some of the parts of the Old Testament weren't debated at all. Um, the five books of Torah were recognized by everybody as uh, canon. And the prophets, uh, except for Ezekiel, they debated Ezekiel. And finally, after the, finally a rabbi, so the story goes, a rabbi at Yamia stayed awake for a whole uh, week trying to rationalize the difference between the temple uh, practices and the ideal temple practices to described in Ezekiel and finally achieved that so that they could accept Ezekiel but he did say that as for who wrote it, God only knows and nobody under 40 should read it. I'm <laughs> sorry, <laughs> we have the records, yes. Yeah, I have a question. Um, Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible, yeah. the things that we quote regarding Jesus, yeah. I understand in the Hebrew Bible do not read like that. 
Uh, now I'm talking about a Hebrew Bible, a Jewish Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Let me answer the question this way. Uh, she's asking about what the the references that we interpret as references to Jesus in the book of the prophet Isaiah. One of the other uh, fine Old Testament scholars that I rubbed elbows with over the course of several years was Jim Sanders, uh, who is now Professor Emeritus at Claremont School of Theology and, and uh, President Emeritus of the uh, Ancient Biblical Manuscript Center, a place where they are trying to get all the fragments and the copies of the Bible onto photographic materials so that they can preserve them there in one place and catalog them all. It is a massive undertaking, and he has worked at it for the better part of the last uh, 25 or 30 years. At any rate, he had two dictums. He said, when you read the Bible, read it forward, not backwards. Right. And when you read the Bible, you theologize, you do not moralize. You hear me? You do not make saints out of sinners, <laughs> like the patriarchs. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you read. You read. What the the issue in the Bible is? What is God doing? Not what are human beings are doing, because most of the human beings are not doing things that are doing things they ought not to do. Let me put it that way. Even even in our scripture, so that you understand. Does that answer your question yeah. a little bit? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in other words. In other words. Okay. In other words. Let me see it. Yeah. In other words. When you do this, when you say, all right, what Isaiah the prophet was talking about was Jesus of Nazareth, what you're doing is taking your understanding of Jesus of Nazareth and reading it back into the scripture. Yes. That's dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous. Well, it's supposed to be for foretelling of Jesus. That's how I understand it. Well, let me just say that the Jews among whom the scripture became scripture do not read it that way. I know, but they say the words aren't the same. Um, That's what I'm talking about, is that not the interpretation thereof, but the words are not there. What we say with Isaiah, they say the words <laughs> aren't there. I'm wondering if it was 90 AD and the rise of the church and the quotes being done by um, Paul, could they have altered it a little? I mean, we know things are altered a little. There are two forms of criticism of the Bible. One is um, prior criticism, which has to do with uh, when the scriptures were written, where they were written, archaeological discoveries, history, of it, and all of that. And then there's lower criticism, which is equally, and that is, what is the text? And there are people who have spent their lives working on what is the text, comparing text. Now, that is, that is an extremely complicated thing. And my answer to that is that the words of the Hebrew Bible that are in your translation are in a similar translation in, that the Jews read. The, there is pretty much wide agreement on what the words are. 
I'm surprised to hear you say that somebody said that the words are different. Um, I don't I don't think that's so. At least not among people who who look at it. And I'm now I'm talking about the Hebrew text. Um, you realize that when you raise something like that, you're really raising a significant, significantly profound question, and you're questioning the work of scholars down across the years who have given us the miracle of the translation of the Bible. As borne out by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's another. That's another issue, Tom. The the Dead Sea Scrolls. If I if I brought my Hebrew Bible, maybe they'd break it in here and turn to the book of the prophet Isaiah, there would be, there is a whole section in that book of uh, notes, critical notes, about word variations from the Dead Sea Scrolls from the received Masoretic text. Now, I've just, I realize I've just babbled in tongues, but you know, <laughs> you'll have to trust me on, trust me on that, that there is, as far as I know, right now, there is no significant change in the meaning. There are variants in the words, but there is a whole section. I want to get to this outline. If you'll excuse me, I'll stop. I knew somehow I would get caught up in this. By the way, the Christian church made a decision about canon only in 1543 and the years following the Council of Trent, which of course was the Anti-Reformation Council. And the reason uh, that they met was to refute everything that Martin Luther said. Well, one of the things that Martin Luther said was that the Old Testament included writings from the Greek tradition which were not part of the Hebrew Old Testament. And what he said was, we ought to go back to the Bible of our forebears, the forebears in the face, the Hebrews. And we ought to accept only the 39 books of the Old Testament. And the Roman Catholic Church said, anything Martin Luther is for, we're against, and vice versa. And so <laughs> what they did at the Council of Trent is say, we, can, we make canonical also books that we Protestants call apocrypha. Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, and some of the rest of those books. So when I say, I'm talking about the Protestant Bible, I am a Protestant. I'm not a Roman Catholic. I think I have good reasons, besides the fact I was born into a Protestant family, for being Protestant and not Roman Catholic, and this is one of them. We got a discussion about canon to talk about. Jim Sanders amazed me because I talked with him one time, and he didn't think canon was all that crucial. I think canon is crucial. What you mark as authoritative over you is crucial. So I'm, you know, <laughs> one. Roman Catholic scholar who addressed us at ORU said one time, he, he read from the book of Ecclesiasticus, which is an interesting book to read, by the way, and he was reading about Ecclesiasticus's praise for the doctor. He said, it is a book that we think is inspired, and you at least think it's inspirational. So he said, I can sit still for that. Yeah, I understand that. Now, what I, want to, what I want to do is give you an idea about the 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 uh, drama, uh, understanding the Bible as a drama in four acts, and this is not original with me. Uh, Bernard Anderson wrote a book a number of years ago, a fine Old Testament scholar, uh, about uh, God's drama for this, God's, the unfolding drama of the Bible was the proper title of it, and he put it in about eight acts, and they, they got all complicated, and he had scenes in the different acts, and I read that, and I thought, I think I can simplify that a little bit, so I want to talk about in the next two weeks about God's drama for this creation. 
And the reason I do that is because the Bible begins, as you well know, in the beginning. The traditional Bible begins in the beginning. And the Bible ends with the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And in between that is the story that God preserved for us of this creation. And it projects ahead to the end of this creation in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, and on your outline, let's get to the biblical narrative. Let's take a look at Act 1 of the creation. And in this outline, what I want what I want to say, the biblical narrative for this act extends from, I'll write it on the board over here just so we get it, Genesis 1 through 11. That's chapters, Genesis 1 through 11. And if you wonder about that, if you read the Bible, and, and most people who do read the Bible get to recognize that at the at the end of the 11th chapter, there is a change. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are something that I tend to call prehistory, meaning that all of the records that we have uh, about the world, from the uh, world around Israel, for that period of time, and from the beginning to the end of the 11th chapter, are mythical in the worst sense of the words. They're about uh, gods and demigods and other sorts of beings, and, and they are not what we would call history in the sense of human activity, pure human activity. But Genesis 12.1, of course, begins with, And God said to Abram, and the Lord said to Abram. And that's where history begins. Bible, because from that point on, we can look archaeologically, we can look at the, the records of peoples around Israel, and we can see the circumstances of Abraham defined in history as we understand it. Now, the important part of the act of creation, and I will elaborate on this much next week, there are two basic sins committed by all humanity in the act of creation. The first one is Eden. Disobedience to God. We're going to talk about that. And the second one is Babel. Babel. Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel. And all the world was one people, and they had one language, and there were only a few words in the language. And do we, you want to know where I... This idea came to me, a little book by a psychiatrist by the name of Thomas Zaz, called The Second Sin. And The Second Sin, according to Thomas Zaz, is to speak clearly. <laughs> and this is an interesting book to read. Maybe, uh, I think I'll bring it back next week and give you a couple of samples of what, what he's talking about. And by the way, one of the things that has come to me... Um, and it's been fairly recently, and it, it relates here, is I started thinking hmm, a month ago, several weeks ago, anyway, I started wondering, does God know all languages? And all of a sudden it occurred to me, no. God knows language. He knows how to communicate ideas. 
He knows how to communicate ideas which we as human beings translate into whatever language we receive the message from God in. And that means that in some sense all talk about God is metaphorical. All right? We are describing God and the realm in which God exists in the terms of what we know here on earth. Now, whether that meets the criteria of what actually exists in the realm, we can't know. But we have to, the word that people reject is myth, all right? But if you know anything about the story of C.S. Lewis, you know that what happened to him on Edison's walk under the influence of Tolkien and Dyson was that he was convinced that Christianity was a true myth. That was what sent him over the edge. And ultimately, a few days later, went on that immemorial uh, motorcycle ride with his brother from from uh, the Kilns to Whipsnade Zoo. <laughs> he said, when I started out, I wasn't a Christian, and when I got there, I was. <laughs> but the good of that was that he came to understand the Bible. Yes, it's mythical. It has to be, because we're translating it into the language that we understand. But in this case, it is the true myth, the true myth of Jesus Christ. Have you read Lewis enough to know what I'm talking about? All right, you know what now, don't you? <laughs> I've got to break there. I've got to stop there. I want to. I want to stop there because. I can pick it up there next week. I promise you, we will go much more into this outline, but we will do it in whatever detail you want to do it in. But what I hope I've done is raise the, raise, lay the foundation for what we are going to do in the next couple of weeks. Let's close with prayer. For your many gifts to us, O oh Lord, we are ever grateful. Although we are grateful for the gift of yourself, that you came in search of us, and that you found us, and that you revealed yourself to us, and that you came in form like one of us, and stood among us, and showed us what life in intimate relationship with you could be. Help us as the days of our lives go along, that we may live and understand more and more by the light of your Son, what our lives can be in your grace and in following him. In his name we pray. Amen.